So we finished Isaiah 62 last week. 62 was the restoration of Jerusalem. And I think it's either a thousand year reign or a new heaven and new earth passage. Sometimes hard to tell the difference. And I've mentioned this a lot of times before. Isaiah was written well over a century before Jerusalem was destroyed. So the destruction and restoration of Jerusalem is yet future to Isaiah. And then the restoration, of course, in this iteration is yet future to us. So I'm going to pick it up at 62.10, and then that'll take us right into 63. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And then 63, Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garment from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Basra is, of course, a city in Jordan, south of Jerusalem. It's in Edom, obviously, which is toward the south end of the Dead Sea on the eastern side of the Jordan. What this sounds like is that this is Yeshua coming up on his way to Jerusalem and trampling his way through somebody as he comes up. Verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, I trampled them in my wrath, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So this metaphor of treading the winepress shows up several places, but most notably in Revelation 14.20, and then we'll go to Revelation 19. This is before the seven plagues. Starting in Revelation 15, we have the seven bowls of God's wrath. But if you back up to Revelation 14, picking it up in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. There's going to be two reapings here. So 14 through 16 is reaping what looks like grain, although it doesn't say so. Now in verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, 
and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who was authority over the fire, and he called out in a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. And 1600 stadia, according to my note here, is 184 miles. So you have two angels, both reaping. Reaping number one is good because that's the gathering in, if you will, of the faithful to God. Remember, Yeshua says that the fields are white in the world and they send laborers into the field and all that kind of stuff. So the idea of reaping grain in the first reaping, you want to be one of those who is reaped there. And then once his harvest is gathered, and you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? where you have an enemy that sows tares among the wheat, and Yeshua says, don't pluck up until the harvest, and then what's going to happen is I will take the wheat into my barns, and then I will throw the tares into the furnace. So this metaphor of two reapings. Reaping number one is the good stuff, the stuff that is desired by him who planted it, wheat in the case in Revelation, grain in the case of uh, the parable of the, the wheat and the tares. And then the second reaping, starting in verse 17 Revelation, is grapes. And those grapes are specifically thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. So they would be analogous to the tares in the parable of the wheat and tares that get gathered and thrown into the furnace, as opposed to the wheat which gets gathered into the barn. So said this about Revelation before. Revelation, of course, has got three sequences of seven in it. It's got seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath. I personally believe that each of those seven is sequential. And I furthermore believe that the first seven, the second seven, and the third seven are sequential. In between each set of seven, you've got this explanatory stuff some of it's historical, some of it's context, but it does not appear to be sequential. So the fact that this dual reaping, if you will, happens before the seven plagues may not be in sequence, but in this case, I think it is. Because what I think is going to happen, at least as I understand it, you have seven seals where the king is authenticated. As the lamb opens up the seven seals, he is authenticated as being the one who has the authority to take the earth. Then you have seven trumpets, which are the announcement to the world of the coming of the king. And then you have the seven bowls of wrath, which are the king taking his vengeance on his enemy. So I can see this dual reaping as the reaping of the wheat being taken into his barn as happening before the bowls of wrath. I'm assuming that he's not going to pour out bowls of wrath on his own. So I'm assuming that the harvest of the wheat, the first harvesting, the first angel with the sharp sickle, 
is going to happen before the seven bowls of wrath. And then the second reaping, which is the grapes that get thrown into the wine press, I could see the seven bowls of wrath being that wine press. It's obviously highly metaphoric, highly poetic, and everything I just said is speculation. So do with it what you want. When you have back in Isaiah 63.3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. So that seems to me to be the harvest of the grapes that happens in Revelation 14.17. Buy that or not as you choose. Lots and lots of people have lots of different interpretations about Revelation. So the next place that the wine press shows up in Revelation is in Revelation 19. If you go down to verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Now you remember we had a white horse back at the beginning of the seals. So what I will suggest to you is the white horse at the beginning of the seals where he opens up the seals and behold a white horse and behold a red horse behold a black horse behold a pale horse you have four horses that come out the white horse that comes out in the opening of the seals is not the messiah what i believe it is is the false christs the false messiahs because remember we're doing matthew 24 that yeshua said that there's going to be many false messiahs that are going to show up and people are going to say look he's out there in the wilderness look he's in the inner rooms look he's over there and he says in no case should you go out to those false messiahs so what i am believing is that the white horse at the first seal is these false messiahs that are going to go out and try and deceive the world and then of course the red horse is war and the black horse is famine, and then the pale horse is pestilence. So, back here to Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. The significance of having a name that no one knows except you is that no one has authority over you. If you are allowed to name something, you have authority over it. That's just all over the place in popular culture, in mythological culture, etc. The idea of you know somebody's name gives you power over that person. And similarly, if you are the one who is able to give someone a name. You can only give a name to someone who is subordinate to you. So the fact that he has a name that no one knows except him, he is not subordinate to anybody. That's what the metaphor is. 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We have the vestiture dipped in blood again. The same thing we had back in Isaiah 63. So he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Notice that is not his name. It's the name by which he is called. Because his actual name nobody knows. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. 
were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This rider on a white horse is the Messiah. The first rider on a white horse is a false Messiah. Now, to explain these images, you go back to Genesis 49, and this is Jacob on his deathbed providing the prophecy and blessings over his 12 sons. Go down to verse 8, and of course Yeshua is of the tribe of Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, or until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what the blessing Judah is getting is the blessing of kingship. Judah is the kingly line. And throughout Israel's history, say for example under the Maccabees, or under Saul, when you had some other tribe acting as king in Israel, it didn't usually last very long. Judah is the one who is, if you will, got the temperament to be a king. And when we go through the sale of Joseph and so forth, we'll see the beginning of the description of the temperament of Judah. So verse 10 again. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him or until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Both his brothers and the nations will bow down to him. And of course, when you had a king in Israel, it was just Israel that was bowing down to him. So the fact that the nations or the peoples will bow down to him is a future thing, speaking of the Messiah. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. So we're not talking about treading the nations, but the metaphor is again the same, that he is treading the wine press, if you will, and the grape juice is splashing up on his white garments. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. His eyes in Revelation are like a flame of fire. So the idea that his eyes stand out, and then his teeth are whiter than milk. His teeth, in this case, are referring to the armies of heaven, because we saw just now in Revelation that the armies of heaven who are following behind him are on white horses, and they are clothed in white robes. The poetic metaphor, if you will, is consistent, starting back in Genesis 49, going all the way to the second coming in Revelation. And so what Isaiah is talking about here, where he says, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in a wine press? Everybody who reads this, who understands Torah, knows what's going on. Because they all expect the Messiah to come from Judah. They've got the prophecy given to Judah by Jacob, and the metaphors are always consistent. So now, 
It says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. So who are the people in this case? The peoples in this case, I don't believe, are the Hebrews. I believe that going back to Revelation 14, they are the ones who were not reaped in the first harvest where he brought the grain into his barns. These are the ones that are left, left behind, if you will, who are then not his people. And what he's going to do is he's going to wind up treading them down underfoot. Verse 4, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So he is redeeming, I am suggesting Israel, and redeeming his own, and taking vengeance on his enemies. So I think personally that this is the beginning of the thousand-year reign. Could be also the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the thousand-year reign. I believe that the fall feasts are when this is all going to go down. So I believe that he will touch down at the Feast of Trumpets. I believe that that will be on the seventh trumpet, and I believe that it will mirror the events of Joshua at Jericho, where Joshua takes the nation Israel across the Jordan River. Joshua and Yeshua are the same Hebrew spelling. So Joshua, Yeshua, goes in and marches around Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day blows the trumpet and everybody shouts, and the walls fall down, and Yeshua, Joshua, leads his people into the land to displace those who are in the land. And what are the instructions that Moses and Joshua and God give with regard to the people who are already in the land when Israel crosses the Jordan? All of them are to die. You're not to leave anything that breathes. You remember when God is speaking to Abraham, where he slices the animals in half and the torch goes between, and what he says is your people will go into a strange land, they'll be there for 400 years, they'll become slaves, and then when they come out, I'm going to let them have this land that I am promising you. And the reason for the delay is the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, you don't get it yet because the people who are here have not yet stunk so much that I finally can't stand it anymore and decide to wipe them out. So what we can assume, because the instructions via Moses and God are everybody in the land is iniquitous, wipe them out. That sounds very much to me like Yeshua with his armies in white linen and on white horses treading the winepress of the wrath of God. Sounds to me like the same set of instructions. And again, correlating Revelation with Isaiah, where in Isaiah he says in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. But we have in Revelation 19 that he has the armies of God with him on white horses arrayed in white robes, which is to say these are not from the peoples, these are the army of God, and the ones who are in the land are like the inhabitants of Canaan 
when Joshua goes in and takes them out. And of course we know he didn't take them all out and they became thorns in the flesh and so forth. But the instructions were take them all out. Verse 7 in Isaiah 63, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Before this, you had in 62, the return or the rebuilding or the reestablishment of Jerusalem, either in the new heaven and the new earth or the thousand-year reign, I'm not sure which. Then you have the king taking vengeance on his enemies. So now what you have is Israel reminding God and praying about his goodness to Israel. Because remember, what's happened here is all of this is by way of restoration because the prophecy is after Israel has been exiled and scattered more than a century in the future from when Isaiah is writing. But Isaiah is writing of a time before the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 when all of Israel was scattered all over the world. So now we are having an appeal to his mercy on behalf of Israel who has been scattered among the nations and one of the things that the Messiah is going to do is regather all of Israel. And those of you who have been around for a while know that one of the reasons that rabbinic Jews don't buy that Yeshua is the Messiah is because that gathering didn't happen. And similarly, there's a strain of Orthodox Judaism that thinks that the modern state of Israel is illegitimate because it was not established by the Messiah. So verse 7 now. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity he redeemed them, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. We're going to recount the history of Israel here. So I am assuming that this is the release from Egypt. By the way, in verse 9, my translation says, in all their affliction he was afflicted. And there is a note that it could also be read, in all their affliction, he did not afflict. And the reason I say that, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, could be regarded as a reference to the cross. If it is, in all their affliction, he did not afflict them, then it could very well be talking about the Exodus. They were afflicted in Egypt, but it wasn't from him. What I don't know is what period of history this is referring to. So let me read 9 again. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, which is what leads me to think we're talking here about Egypt. 
But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. And obviously the history of Israel, they turned their back on him, went over to idols and so forth, and he did, in fact, become their enemy, quote-unquote. He wasn't really their enemy, but he's enforcing the terms of the covenant. Verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. So after they rebelled, and after he became their enemy in their rebellion, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. So an alternate translation of verse 11, the first part, or then his people remembered the days of old of Moses. So his people hearkened back to Moses, or he hearkened back to Moses. Either one is apparently a good translation, and I am not qualified to disambiguate. So let's try and get through verse 11 here. So verse 11, my translation. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Because remember, they rebelled, grieved his Holy Spirit. He became anger with them. And so now the question is, where is he now? He being God. So where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? So all of this obviously is God in the Exodus. So starting back at 11, he remembered the days of old, or they did, And then the questions are, where is he? And then this list of things that he did in the past. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So the idea obviously is that he took them out of Egypt for the purpose of making a name for himself. Verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. So who in the world is speaking here? I can see three possibilities. One thing it could be is Christians, because Israel doesn't acknowledge them. So it's entirely possible to be Christians. Or it could be Messianic Jews, as in ethnic Jews who are Messianics, not Christians who follow the Torah. The third thing it could be are the lost tribes. And as I think all of you know, Israel has an ongoing project to try and track down the lost tribes. And they found them in Thailand, and they found them in Ethiopia, and all sorts of places, trying to find them and bring them back. We, as you all know, of course, are a two-house congregation. So it is our belief, my belief, you can believe it too if you like, that there is a lot of Ephraim out there who live in the Christian church and has no idea 
that they're Ephraim. And again, Israel doesn't recognize them because they have been assimilated so long that they no longer remember that they are a part of the 12 tribes. I don't know who's being spoken of here, but I can see several possibilities. And I tend to like the one that says, there are people of us out here who are your people. Israel doesn't recognize us, so we're calling on your mercy because we are part of Israel. But I'm not pushing that very hard because I don't know. So let's pick it up at 15 again. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. If you go to the book of Hebrews, one of the points that Hebrews makes is that Christ, because he is a man, is our brother, and therefore all who are in Christ, being brothers of Christ, are children of God. That works for me, and again, Abraham doesn't know them. Abraham didn't raise no Baptists, so Abraham doesn't know them, and Israel doesn't acknowledge them, so that could be what's going on here too. Verse 17, O Lord... Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. That speaks to me of the northern kingdom, lost tribes. You sort of got a mishmash of possible people that this could be speaking of. Back in verse 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? And then return for the sake of your servants, comma, the tribes of your heritage. So you could see somebody who is genetically Zebulun, who 3,000 years later, has totally forgotten that he's Zebulun, doesn't know that he ever was Zebulun, maybe a Baptist or a Lutheran somewhere. And what he's saying is, why did you harden our hearts? Why did you drive us away from your ways? The answer to that, as we have been reading in Isaiah, is when you go into idolatry, what God does is hardens your heart. Go back to Isaiah 6, and there is your answer. Isaiah 6 Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without habitation and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. The whole point is when they violated his covenant, he says, fine, you want idols? 
you want to do something else? We'll do it in spades. And he hardens their heart, and he sends them into exile. So when we get to the end of 63, in verse 17, he says, O Lord, why did you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Your answer is in Isaiah 6. And what's happening in Isaiah 63:17 is people in the exile are awakening to the fact that they are Israel. And I firmly believe that's what the Messianic churches are doing. We have people show up that got no idea, but they just know there's something wrong with the Sunday church. It isn't complete, it isn't satisfying, and they turn to places where Moses is taught and they walk in the ways of Moses and they find there a peace. And so what I'm suggesting to you is Isaiah 63:17 is that process. When I finally figured this out, it was just very obvious to me that this is the way it's supposed to be done. Let's finish up the chapter and we'll give up. Verse 17, one more time and we'll read to the end. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people have possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. That to me is the tribes in the diaspora, the ten tribes. They've lost their identity. They have become like those over whom God never ruled. Obviously here, 17, 18, and 19, they are calling out from the dispersion, from having been lost for almost 3,000 years. They are waking up and calling out to God and asking to be brought back, calling upon his mercy. And he says, by the way, in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that when I've scattered you and you call out to me with your whole heart, then I'll hear and I will bring you back. And I think that's what's going on.